This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in order to worship you through the teaching of the Word this morning, in order to fellowship around your Word, in order to be reminded that you are a God who has loved us in such a way that you sent your unique Son to die on the cross as a substitute for us, that at the cross you paid the penalty for our sins, not for ours only, but those of the whole world. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study today as we learn about our Savior, learn about who he is, because that provides the basis for what he did. Help us to understand more fully the importance of what we celebrate this time of year at Christmas, that this is not just simply a time of parties and giving gifts and various activities, but it is a time to remember that you from eternity past had a perfect plan of salvation, and that included sending your son who became a true human being in the fullness of time and that he, having entered into history, would eventually grow up, go to the cross, and die for our sins. Father, we thank you for all that we are learning about you. Pray that we would be challenged to grow and mature. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our last class a few weeks ago, we began to study a new topic, second hour on Sunday morning, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. And I looked at a couple of different passages in the Gospel of Matthew in order to focus our attention on certain questions that had been asked related to the Lord Jesus Christ and related to his 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 ministry and his person and the first question was asked or he asked of the disciples and that is who do men say that I am and they came up with various options and then the second question had to do with uh who, when he addressed the Pharisees in Matthew, he said, who do you say that the Christ is? And in their answer, they said, well, Christ is a man. And he said that, quoting Psalm 110.1, he began to uh, confound them. Psalm 110.1 is a verse that we have studied in the past. And I want you to look at this this morning because it's important for laying the foundation of what I'm doing in this particular in this particular study. So Psalm 110, 1 is our verse, and that is being compared to its usage in Matthew 22, verse, verses 41 and following. While they were gathered there, the Pharisees uh, had first 
challenged Jesus with a question as to what was the greatest commandment. Jesus foiled their question, and then he asked them, I always like the way he tried to turn the tables on the disciples. He said, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? And they said to him, well, the son of David. They're focusing on the humanity of the Messiah. And so Jesus then raised the question, well, whose son, whose son is he? Uh, Jesus then raised a question, raised a quote from, from, um, Psalm 110.1, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And I want you to notice how sophisticated the Lord's argument is. He says, David calls him Lord. That is the my Lord. You have two different uh, Lords in that verse. The first Lord is, if you look at the Psalm 110.1 passage, The first Lord is Yahweh, that is the sacred tetragrammaton, referring to the covenant God of Israel. And then the second Lord in the phrase, my Lord, is the Hebrew word Adonai. And that is another word that is used to address the Lord, but shows here a distinct person. That the Lord says to my Lord, and so Jesus' argument in Matthew 22.45 is, if David calls him Lord... How is he a son? In other words, if David addresses this second personage as my Lord, David being an oriental despot in the ancient Near East, an oriental king, you know, you think of oriental in terms of of Far East Asia. However, in most uh, literature of the ancient world, the Orient extends to uh, the Near East or what we call the Middle East. And so he followed the pattern of a of an ancient oriental despot in that area of the world. He had all power and all authority. There was no one over David. No one had any more authority than David, so he could not be addressing a human being. So Jesus points out, if David calls him Lord, how is he also his son? And, of course, what Jesus is pointing out in a very sophisticated argument is that the point of Psalm 110.1 is to indicate that the Messiah was not just a human being, but was also deity. And we have two streams of data in the Old Testament to that converge in Jesus of Nazareth. So we have a chart here where we see on the one hand, that the, there are many Old Testament passages that indicate that the Messiah is a divine Messiah, that he is to be God. And this is indicated by uh, Psalm 110.1 and many other passages which we will look at. On the other hand, you have a second stream of data in the Old Testament that teaches that the Messiah will be a human Messiah. And these two streams tend to run parallel to each other, but there is no clear articulation of the fact that there are going to be two these these two uh, natures united in one person. It's just not clear. It's there, and looking at it from the New Testament, we see it more clearly. We focus on it better, but looking on it, From uh, the Old Testament period, you just see these two different emphases. And so we want to pull this together in our study of the person of Christ to show that in the Old Testament there is a clear anticipation of a Messiah that is fully divine. This isn't something that is just thought up when you get into the church age. Now, there's a popular book that's out today, and there's going to be a movie about this, uh, eventually called the Da Vinci Code. And the Da Vinci Code is made up of a lot of, uh, has a lot of problems in it, and it, maybe I'll get a chance to do a little book review of it in the next week or two uh, and point out some of the flaws that are presented as fact in the movie. But the problem that we have today is that this book has come out. It's a popular book. It's a, it's a suspense 
uh, spy or suspense novel, uh, and everybody seems to really enjoy it. But what happens is when unbelievers are reading this, they are thinking that some of these facts that are presented in the book are actually true. And it's a misrepresentation of who Jesus is. And it states in the book, one of the so-called experts says that, well, the deity of Christ was voted on by the Council of Nicaea. And that's when this idea comes in. And you'll hear this from a lot of people that the early church didn't really view Jesus as, as, as divine. Jesus just presented himself as a, uh, as a religious teacher. He didn't present himself as God. That was just something that came into being through the, through the influence of Greek thought later on some two or three hundred years after Christ died. Problem with that is that it, and, and in the book it presents it as a narrow vote. Just, they just narrowly voted in Jesus' deity. That's right. 300 to 2 is a close vote. So there's a tremendous misrepresentation of these things, but they're going to be picked up by people who read this book and they're going to read that kind of stuff and think, well that, all those Christians just made up all this stuff about Jesus. And what I'm showing you is that it is not the, uh, the deity of Christ is not something that came along at some later period. It was present from the very beginning of the Old Testament. In fact, Dr. Walvoord, who has now gone to be with the Lord and was the president of Dallas Seminary when I was a, was a student there, wrote an excellent book called Jesus Christ Our Lord, Developing the Doctrine of Christology, and in that book, he writes that the doctrine of the eternity of the Son of God, which is something that is brought out in the Old Testament passages, the doctrine of the eternity of the Son of God is the most important doctrine of Christology as a whole, because if Christ is not eternal, then he is a creature who came into existence in time and lacks the quality of eternity and infinity, which characterizes God himself. And what we will see from the Old Testament, and which is where we are beginning our study, is to look at how the Old Testament portrayed the Messiah in his deity. And in the early church, the, there's not much of a heresy problem regarding his deity. There were some heretical movements in the early church that denied his deity, but mostly what you have in the early church is a denial of his humanity. They didn't believe he was fully man, that he was some sort of apparition, according to the Docetics, the Gnostics, that he was just an emanation from God. But some some of these different groups just reduced the level of his humanity. And so it's left more to modern man to reject his deity. So we will interact with that there were, and interact with these heresies. Now, as we go through Christology, I'm going to point out some of these different heresies. And because in the study, that's what I always enjoyed when I was, when I was in seminary and we studied church history was by looking at what the heretical groups taught or what other groups taught that was just a little off course. You got a better focus on what the scriptures taught. Sometimes by uh, juxtaposing truth with error, it brought truth into a more uh, clear focus. The first group of heretics that denied the deity of Christ were called the Ebionites. And the Ebionites were a primarily Jewish sect. Remember, the early church was primarily Jewish. It wasn't until you got to the end of the first century that it took on primarily a Gentile orientation. So the, they were a Jewish group, and they taught that Jesus was simply the son of Joseph and Mary. They were denied the virgin birth, and that at baptism, at the baptism, that is when he is elected or elevated to the position of the Son of God. So you have this idea developing that it is a Jesus baptism that he is infused with deity or adopted to deity or something of that sort. And so this view then later comes in to the church and is known as adoptionism. And in adoptionism, Jesus is a a man who is later elevated to 
uh, deity. He is not fully God, though. He is not eternal. He is a creature that has a starting point in time. So as we address the deity of Christ, the first thing that we're focusing on is his eternality. And eternality means more than simply his pre-existence, means more than the fact that he pre-existed the incarnation. Because in the early church, you had another view, a, a form of adoptionism that was known as Arianism. And this is named after a, a, a presbyter in North Egypt whose name was Arius. And if we were to chart this out like this, this would be... God's timeline here going to eternity, and sometime in eternity past, before creation, you have the creation of Christ. He is created before Genesis 1-1, but sometime in eternity past, so that he's not eternal. Now, the modern name for Arianism is Jehovah's Witnesses. So there's a denial there of the true uh, deity and eternality of Christ. Now, eternality is important because it means that there never was a time, even in eternity past, when Christ did not exist. He is eternal. Only God is eternal, so therefore eternality means that Jesus Christ is full deity. It means that he is pre-existent, but more than simply pre-existent, he is eternal, and that he existed before he became a baby in the manger. Now, what's the Old Testament evidence for this? What's the scripture for this? Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, this was the full name of the town of Bethlehem. This uh, was made approximately, in, in Micah 5.2, this was made about 600, uh, 500 B.C., 600 B.C., Six to, uh, in the, yeah, six to seven hundred BC. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And this was a prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This is just one of over a hundred detailed prophecies in the Old Testament that indicate uh, specific things about the Messiah that were literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the first advent. Another passage that emphasizes his eternality is in Isaiah 9-6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called. And then you have... Uh, Five different titles for the Messiah. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now this term, Everlasting Father, that's actually a bad translation from the Hebrew because the Son is not the Father. And the term in the Hebrew is Aviad. And Av, that first A-V in the English, Av, Actually, it's pronounced more like a V. That is the Hebrew word for father. The I is the first person singular suffix, which means, uh, uh, or in this case, uh, it, it's, excuse me, that, that yod there indicates a, a, a construct. So it's the father of Ad, eternity. And so that is how it should be translated. Abiyad, the father of eternity or an idiom for eternality. He is the eternal one. And so the Messiah is viewed there. That's another Old Testament indication that the Messiah would be fully God. He was eternal. When we get into the New Testament, we have the same emphasis on Jesus as fully being fully divine, full deity. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and this was a title for the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lagos. And as I taught this in the past in John 1, 1, that the word Lagos was a jam-packed word for any reader in the ancient world, not only because it had certain connotations in relationship to, to Greek thought, 
the first principles of thought, etc., and that logos was reason, rationality, communication. But even more than that, there is an Old Testament connotation. If you think about the Old Testament prophets who frequently wrote that the word of the Lord came to me. They're using the word there as a title. They're not saying the message of God came to me. They're talking about an, what we'll see as an Old Testament theophany, which is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament to them to give that message. It wasn't that a message appeared to them, but the person of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity known as the Logos, the Word, appeared to them. And so that's primarily where John gets this idea of Jesus as the Logos, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Logos, the Word, was with God, and the Word was God. So it's not some later edition that Christians came along and said, oh, Jesus is so great, let's deify him now. From the very beginning of the New Testament, Jesus was viewed as God, and he declared himself to be God. For example, in John 8:58, Jesus, in confrontation with the Pharisees, said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He made a point out of using the present tense of the verb ami. He didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am, ego me. Now, there's a couple of different nuances to that that really slap the Pharisees in the face. First of all, the word, the two words, ego me, would be related to the Old Testament title for God, Yahweh, which meant, which was from the to be verb, hayah in the Hebrew, meaning uh, the self-existent one, or it was sometimes translated, I am, that I am. So when Jesus used this phrase, ego eimi, he's making a clear claim to be God. Furthermore, the use of the present tense, in contrast to the past tense for Abraham, was to indicate that Jesus was in existence at the time of Abraham. He said, I existed before Abraham. I was existing before Abraham. I existed at the time of Abraham, and I continue to exist. It is a claim to deity. Furthermore, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, we're told, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is seen as the one who was the active uh, agent in creation. Colossians 1.16 and 17. And then in Revelation uh, 1.11. Revelation 1.11, I don't have a slide there. uh, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. So he claims to be the Alpha and Omega, and that would be an idiom for the beginning and the ending. He is eternal. So Jesus Christ clearly expresses his eternality. He was and is God. So as we go into the Old Testament, I want to look at various passages that indicate that Jesus Christ was viewed as God in the Old Testament and that this same thing was picked up in the New Testament. And so we'll begin by looking at the names of God, uh, the names of Christ, the names applied to him that relate to God. And the first word is the one I just mentioned a minute ago, the sacred tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Now, In the Hebrew, they did not write with vowels initially. Vowels were added later on. They simply had a consonantal alphabet, and it wasn't until later they added vowels. Well, in Hebrew, there's another word, Adonai. Looks like this, and that would be transliterated this way. You would have a... That's for the Aleph. It's just a sort of a glottal stop. And then you have a what would is a uh, kind of an A sound or an E sound, depending on how you transliterate that. It's it's um, 
a short, short vowel sound, and then you have the letter D, and then the letter O, then the consonant N, and then the final vowel AY. Now what they did was they took the vowels from here, they used an E, an O, and an A at the end, and they added that to Yahweh. Now, the other problem that most people run into is that we look at that now and we pronounce it with a Y and a W, but so much scholarship was done in German. They remember, there's a, there's a vowel difference in the Y and the W, and in German they would write it with a J and with a V. So Yahweh became J-H-V-H when it's transliterated by a German, and then they would add the, the vowels, the E, the O, and the A, and that's where you get the word Jehovah. So there's no such thing as Jehovah in terms of a biblical word. That's just a, that's just a compound from two, two words, uh, Jehovah or Yahweh, which the Jews would not pronounce, and every time they would read this in their text, when they would read out loud, they would pronounce Adonai. That's why they had taken the vowels from Adonai and inserted them under Jehovah so that it would look like that, and that's how you ended up with the compound word. Now, what happens is that the in there are a number of passages in the Bible where in the Old Testament that are picked up by writers in the New Testament to indicate that Jesus was God, where he, where statements related to God, to Yahweh in the Old Testament, are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10, we read, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. That's the key word. They will look on me whom they have pierced. The speaker is Yahweh, and he is saying they will look on me. I will be pierced by the Jews. This is picked up in Revelation 1.7, where we're told, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So John, in the writing of Revelation 1.7, picks up this same imagery and applies that to Jesus. So he is saying that Jesus is the same one spoken of in Zechariah 12.10. Another Old Testament prophecy is found in Jeremiah 23.5 and 6. And there we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely, and he will do justice and righteousness in the land. So there is a claim that the Messiah, the branch, will be the source of justice and Righteousness. In fact, in the end of Jeremiah 23, 6, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Then in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Paul writes, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So the righteous branch of Jeremiah 23 is equated to Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Then we have a third example in Psalm 68.18, which talks about, uh, which is a uh, hymn we studied earlier in the summer in relationship to the ascension. Psalm 68.18 was a hymn of triumph as the ark was taken up Mount Zion and put in the place of where the temple would stand. And then David wrote a hymn celebrating that. In verse 18, he said, You have ascended on high, and he's talking about Yahweh. He says, You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. And then this is applied to Jesus by Paul in Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men.
another, a fourth example of a, a pair of verses and pair of quotes in Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your ears will not come to an end. That same verse, which is ascribed to Yahweh in the Old Testament, is ascribed to Jesus in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. You, Lord, are in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. So the point that I am making here is that when you come into the uh, New Testament, what you discover is that these Jewish writers, and remember, all the writers of the New Testament were Jews. When they wrote, these Jewish monotheists wrote the New Testament, what they do is they go back to the Old Testament. These anti-idolatry New Testament writers go back to the Old Testament and they pick up passages that are attributed to Yahweh and they apply them to Jesus. They would never, ever do that unless they were convinced that Jesus Christ was full, undiminished deity. These are Jewish monotheists. It would be the height of blasphemy to attribute any of those Old Testament passages to someone who was a mere man. But they don't do that because they know that Jesus is true God. So the deity of Christ is not something that was voted on by some church council two or three hundred years later, but is the consistent testimony of the church from the writings of the New Testament all the way through. You have the Apostles' Creed. You have various other creedal statements that were written during the 2nd and 3rd century before the Nicene Creed that clearly attest to the deity of Christ. Uh, Isaiah 6.5 is another example, a great example. This is a passage where Isaiah the prophet falls down before God. He sees the glory of God, and he is so overwhelmed that he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the armies. And then when John writes the Gospel of John, he says about the glory of Jesus, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. So John is saying in John 12:41 that the glory they saw of the Lord Jesus Christ was the same glory that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. So that, again, identifies Jesus Christ with Yahweh of the Old Testament. Then again, we have the identification of Jesus with Yahweh of the temple. In Malachi 3.1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way for you before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the, co- of the covenant in whom you, you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here you see two personages again. You see the Lord of hosts who is speaking here, and he says, and these Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. So there's two personages, and here it is the Father referred to as the Lord of the armies, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ referred to as the one whom you seek. And this is picked up in, in a couple of passages in Matthew. In Matthew 12:6, we read, But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here, Jesus referring to himself, that he's greater from the temple, and his entrance into the temple is described in Matthew 21, 12, and 13, when he entered the temple and drove out all those who were, who were buying and selling in the temple. Furthermore, in Matthew 12, 8, Jesus uh, ascribed to himself the authority over the Sabbath, which was uh, ordained by God in the Old Testament. Matthew 12:8, Jesus said of himself, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All of this emphasizes the full deity of Christ, 
where the activities of Yahweh in the Old Testament are ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament. This is the ultimate meaning of the term Lord. When we look at Yahweh in the Old Testament, this is translated into Greek as kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S, kurios. And this is the then comes over into English as the word Lord. This is seen in Acts 2.36. Acts 2.36, where we read, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both what? Lord and Christ. Who made him Lord? God made him Lord. Note the grammar there. You don't make him Lord. You don't make him Lord when you get saved. You don't say, well, Jesus is now Lord of my life. He was made Lord, uh, and Christ designated that by God. That's the point there. It's not that God makes him or creates him. God has designated him both Lord and Christ. This is just in contrast to lordship, salvation. All you have to do to be saved is to believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That takes care of the eternal Issue. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and he could because it was God the Creator who entered into human history and became flesh. And he dwelt among us and then went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sins. Now, another term that is applied to, to Jesus from the Old Testament is the term Elohim. Yahweh is one is the personal name for God. It is a name for God related to his giving a covenant to Israel. Another name for God given in the Old Testament is Elohim. E-L-O-H-I-M. And this is more of a generic term for God. And could have been used for any deity and was used for any deity, but it is specifically applied in passages to the Messiah. For example, in a passage similar to the Malachi 3.1 passage, which we just looked at, Isaiah 40, verse 3, references the announcement of the forerunner, John the Baptist, of voices calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, and there it's Yahweh, Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And this is then applied to Jesus in Luke 3, 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he is seen as God, Elohim. Again, in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. 9, 6, we looked earlier at the phrase eternal father, and now we will look at the uh, fourth title, mighty God. He's wonderful, counselor, mighty God, and that is the term Elohim. So the Messiah is said to be God. And then another allusion to deity is seen in Psalm 110.1, which we uh, looked at earlier, and in Psalm 110.1, you have that second use of Lord. The first is Yahweh, the second is Adonai. So we have Yahweh, the first name for God in the Old Testament, Elohim, a second name for God in the Old Testament, and the third is Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-Y, or sometimes A-I, simply means Lord. Sometimes it can be used in just a secular, everyday conversation context of referring to a master, or uh, it could be used somewhat synonymous to what we would say in terms of sir. So it was used as a synonym, though, for deity, and in Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, that second Lord is again ascribing deity to the Messiah. All of these terms indicate that Jesus was viewed, the Messiah was viewed from the Old Testament as being full deity. It's not something New Testament writers invented. It's not something that the church two or three hundred years after Jesus invented and ascribed to Jesus. It is something that was present from revelation in Scripture from the very beginning. 
A fourth title that is given to Jesus that indicates his deity is the term Son of God. Son of God. And this term is one that is has some difficulties only in that the concept of Son indicates some sort of temporal generation. And we have to understand what this phrase Son of means in Hebrew. This is not something that, that just uh, indicates that he has a father and he's generated and he has a point of origin. See, this is what becomes confusing. So we need to answer the question, did Jesus become the Son of God? Was there a time when he wasn't the Son of God? Even if we believe in the eternality of Jesus, was there a time when he wasn't the Son of God? Further, we need to discover if there has always existed a father-son relationship between the first and second persons of the Trinity. Or is sonship merely a role, a title, or a function of the second person of the Trinity, which he acquired at some time in human history? What we're getting at here is to answer the question, is Jesus essentially and eternally the Son of the Father? Are those terms Son and Father uh, terms that designate an eternal relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity. Is he a son intrinsically, or is he simply a son extrinsically, or in terms of, of uh, role, title, or function? So we have to look at the term Son of God. This term is used 42 times in the Bible to refer to Jesus Christ. That is the full designation, Son of God. The term son, as applied to Jesus, the term son existing on its own is used even more, uh, more frequently than the phrase son of God. The problem is with this term is we understand derivation to indicate, or, or understand the term son to indicate some sort of creaturely derivation, descent, offspring, or birth. And that's the problem that the early church encountered when Arius came along and started teaching that there was a time when Christ was not. This raised the question in the early church of the, of Jesus' essential relationship to the Father. Was Jesus of the same nature as the Father or a similar nature as the Father? And this also became known as the War of the Diphthongs. In Greek, you had two words, homoousios and homoousios. Transliterated, they look like this. Now, the only difference between these two words is this letter, I in the English, or uh, iota in the Greek. And it's lacking from the top word. And the difference is that in the first word, that would suggest that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father. The second word would say that Jesus is of similar essence to the Father. Now you're sitting there and you think, what's the big deal here? Well, in the first word, that would mean that Jesus was fully God. He is full deity. The second word, he's just like deity. He is not true deity. And when uh, uh, they, they battled this out at the uh, Council of Nicaea, they rejected the second term because it did not do justice to what the Bible taught about Jesus Christ being full deity. So it's important to understand these things. If Jesus is just like the Father, then their conclusion was we don't have a salvation. We don't have a Savior. Jesus has to be fully God to provide salvation, even though his humanity 
is a substitute for all humanity. It is his deity that provides an infinite value to whatever he does in his humanity because of the they're united together in one person. And this is something that we will discuss in more detail as we go through our study, understanding the whole concept of the hypostatic union. So what does the term son mean? If it doesn't mean derivation or beginning, it doesn't have anything to do with origin, we have to understand how this phraseology is used in the Scripture. And it has its roots in a Hebrew idiom. A Hebrew idiom, and I'll go through several verses to show how this works itself out. For example, in number 17, verse 10. Now, you wouldn't notice this in your English, because the English reads, uh, quote, put, where the Lord said to Moses, quote, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. But the Hebrew word isn't simply rebels, it's sons of rebels, sons of rebels. So the term sons of or son of is an adjectival description so that the noun that is in the genitive, rebels in this case, is describing a characteristic of those individuals. So they're called sons of that characteristic. They are, uh, in this case, rebels. So the translator understood this and just translated it as rebels. Another example was in Psalm 89.22. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And in the synonymous parallelism of these two stanzas, son of wickedness is parallel to enemy. It is a wicked person. It is not that his parents were wicked or his father was wicked. It is simply that he is described as being wicked. Second Kings 6.32 has the phrase, son of a murderer. And there the king, or the messengers came to the elders and said, Do you see how this son of a murderer was sent to take away my head? And it is just, he's calling the individual a murderer. He is not ascribing uh, criminality to his father. In Job 38, Job makes the statement, Fools, even those without a name, they were scourged from the land. But literally in the Hebrew it reads, Sons of fools. So again, it's an idiom describing the characteristic of someone. Um, 1 Samuel 25:17 has the phrase in the New American Standard, a worthless man, literally in the Hebrew, it's a son of Belial. It is a description of their character. Uh, Proverbs 31:5, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. But the word in the Hebrew isn't afflicted, it's b'nai oni, the sons of affliction. And then in Ezra 4:1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile, literally it's the sons of the exile, the exiled ones, not the descendants of those who had been exiled, but the exiled ones. So it's a description, an adjective. Psalm 89.22, the enemy will not deceive him. We've already had that one up there. Amos 7.14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. It's a it's a parallel synonym. Son of a prophet meaning a prophet. He's just saying it again in a in a parallel way in poetry. The point is that all of these phrases show that the term son of X, whatever the X is, that is describing the attribute or characteristic of a person. For example, Isaiah 51.12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? See, the phrase son of man means a human being, not a descendant. Uh, Isaiah 19.11, how can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise? In other words, he's not talking about his father being wise, but that he is a, he is indeed himself wise. Acts 4.36, Barnabas was called son of encouragements. That's the literal meaning of the word. And it's not that his father was an encourager, but that he was an encourager. Mark 3.17, the uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were called the sons of thunder because they had such a, a thunderous personality. They were so prone to getting in, getting riled up. 
Luke 10.6, and if a man of peace, literally it's a son of peace, someone who's a peaceful individual. Uh, Ephesians 2.2, the sons of disobedience, it's describing their characteristic. They are disobedient. And then John 17.12, referring to Judas, he is called the son of perdition. And the word there is a uh, cognate of a, of a, a polyon, which means... Uh, Destruction, as in John 3.16, those who reject Christ will perish. So he is one who perishes. All of these verses indicate that such titles as Son of God do not indicate derivation. It's not indicating he came from someone. But that phrase, Son of God, is emphasizing what? God. Remember, son of a fool emphasizes that a person's a fool. Son of a murderer indicates they're a murderer. So son of God indicates that they are full deity. So when you look at that phrase, son of, it is not indicating parentage. It is indicating his full, undiminished deity. So son of God indicates that Jesus Christ himself is God. Then he is called the firstborn. Is called the firstborn. In the Greek, this is the word prototakos. Looks like this. P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. Prototakos. Firstborn. And this word is applied to Jesus in five different passages. It's applied to him in Romans 8.19, Colossians 1.15, and 18. Revelation 1.5 and Hebrews 1.6. Now, this word has a Hebrew background to understand it, the concept of the law of primogenitor, which meant that the oldest son would receive a double portion in the inheritance, that the oldest son would be rewarded with honor and prestige. But if the oldest son, that is the one who was born first chronologically, fell out of favor with the father, then he would be replaced by the younger son who would then be called a prototakos. So prototakos has to do with being uh, highest in rank, not first in chronological order. See, when we think of of Jesus being firstborn, the first thing that comes to your mind is time. He's born before others. But it was a title for uh, the the one who had the prestige, the one who was uh, first in priority or first in rank, not necessarily first in chronological order. For example, uh, Ishmael was the one who was born first, but Ishmael had to serve Isaac. Isaac was the firstborn, but not chronologically first. Esau served Jacob. Esau was born first chronologically. He was the older of the twins. J- Jacob was second, but Jacob was the firstborn. Uh, Reuben who was the elder, was to serve Joseph the younger. So Joseph is the firstborn. Manasseh was born first, yet he was to serve Ephraim. Ephraim was the firstborn. Aaron, that is the prototakos. Aaron was to the elder, but he was to serve Moses. Gentiles predated the Jews, but Gentiles served the, served the Jews, Exodus Four twenty-two. Adonijah was the firstborn, yet he was to serve Solomon. First Kings one five. So the one who is first in rank or privilege is the firstborn. The conclusion from this is that Jesus' title, firstborn, indicates that he deserves a preferential share in honor and inheritance. It is not a term indicating chronology. Then the next term that is used to refer to Jesus is one that everyone's familiar with from John 3.16, and that is the term begotten. And there it's translated only begotten, and this is the Greek word monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S. Now this word, again, because it uses this word genes, Many think this comes from the Greek word ganao, which is related to our word generate, or to give birth. So we think of only begotten as someone who has a beginning, but this 
generates a certain number uh, of problems. What we have is a difficulty in identifying the root of this second half of the compound, and that should be the Greek word genes, not genao. And genes is G-E-N-N-E-S, and this is etymologically related to the Latin word genus, as in a kind, uh, genus of species. So, and compound with monos, this indicates the nature of the individual as being one, mono meaning one, genes meaning kind, and it indicates his uniqueness. He is a one of a kind, not an only born. He is a one of a kind. So we don't take the term here as it applies in terms of birth. It is used in the uh, New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, to refer to Isaac. Isaac was the second born of Abraham, yet Hebrews 11 refers to him as the only begotten of Abraham. He is not the only son of Abraham. He had other sons, but he is the unique son of Abraham. He is uh, the son of promise that God had promised to him. So he is un- a unique son to Abraham. So a this this title begotten once again indicates the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He is the unique Son of God, not the uh, uniquely born one, but the unique Son of God, because as uh, we have seen, that term Son of indicates deity, not birth. So he is the unique Son of God, or the unique God, in that he is the one who is designated to be our Savior, and he is the one who takes on humanity, and he is the second person of the Trinity who goes into hypostatic union for all the rest of eternity. And then another phrase that we have that describes Jesus is the term angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord. And this is not a term that describes an angel. Many people think the angel of the Lord is just a special messenger of God. The term angel from the Greek angelos, uh, Hebrew malach, malach means messenger. But this is not the term for messenger. In Genesis 31, when the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, he is designated the angel of Yahweh, but is also referred to simply as Yahweh in the passage. The same thing happens in Judges 6, when the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and Gideon worships the angel of the Lord, builds an altar and sacrifice to Gideon, I mean, builds an altar and sacrifice to the angel of the Lord. And then we come to a passage in Zechariah 1.13, where we see that, that even though in Genesis 31 and, Ze- and, uh, Gen- and Judges 6, Genesis 31 and Judges 6, the angel is identified with God, in Zechariah 1.13 and 14, we see that the angel is also distinct from God. In Je- Zechariah 1.13, the Lord, Yahweh, answered the angel who was speaking with me, and the angel who was speaking with him is the angel of the Lord. So there is a conversation between these two persons. That indicates that the angel of the Lord is distinct, a a distinct personage from Yahweh. So this line of reasoning demonstrates to us that Jesus as the Messiah was always viewed in the Old Testament as being divine. That's one of those two lines. And next time we'll come back and we'll look at the second line of evidence for the humanity of Jesus Christ. We're going to tie three things together next time from different psalms in order to put together the deity and the humanity of Christ and show that even though it isn't focused or crystallized for us in the Old Testament, there is clear evidence from the Old Testament to show the anticipation of the hypostatic union. That is to provide for our salvation. If Jesus isn't fully man, there's no salvation. If Jesus isn't fully God, there is no salvation. If Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, then he must have been 
as as uh, many apologists have pointed out, that if Jesus wasn't who, who he claimed to be, he must have been the greatest deceiver of all time because so many have been led astray by his lie that he was God, or he must have been absolutely insane to claim to be God. And since his life and the testimony of Scripture does not support either a claim of, of him, his being a liar or his being a uh, being insane, he must be who he claimed to be, and that is the eternal Son of God who came to earth to die on the cross for our sins, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to come to a greater understanding of who our Savior is, that the Lord Jesus Christ, who existed throughout all eternity, took on humanity and entered into human history via the virgin conception and virgin birth, that he became a true human being, that he might go to the cross and there take upon himself the penalty for our sins. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you have the option to determine where you will spend eternity. It's up to you. Nobody else can make the decision for you. It's not about works. It's not about what you've done. It's not about how bad you've been. It's not about uh, anything that's happened in your life. It's not about uh, ritual. It's not about religion. It's about what you think about Jesus Christ. If you put your faith alone in Christ alone, then God says that you have eternal salvation, and that can never be taken from you. If you reject the offer of salvation, then you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Father, we pray that you would just challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.